Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you again this week as the pastor is still on vacation. And we are once again going to be taking a look at Ecclesiastes. And uh, if we put up the first slide, oh, there it is. That was, that was the first slide. Okay. Uh, whoops. I just lost my way. Hold on. Okay. See if that'll stay on. Well, I'm all messed up now. Okay. All right. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. And I've entitled this section, Study More. Now, I noticed that we do have some children here in the audience, at least some that are, that are still around, and it's June, correct? And what you do not want to hear is study more. Uh, we're probably all familiar with the little rhyme that says, no more pencils, no more books, no more Teachers, dirty looks, okay? Well, I I want you to know there's actually a second stanza to that little rhyme. It goes like this. What I learned, I don't remember. No more study till September. Uh, So I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to interrupt the summer vacation, and we're going to talk a little bit about studying more. And uh, I get this from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Um, We're going to put that up here on the screen. Uh, Solomon writes at verse 12, and he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. Now, Solomon was a great king, and he is, according to the Bible, the wisest of all of the kings in Israel, maybe the wisest man that has ever lived. You might recall that when Solomon became king, uh, the Lord came to Solomon and said, Solomon, ask whatever you would like. Uh, and I will give it to you. And he thought about that for a while, and he came back to God, and he said, what I would like is wisdom, so that I might know how to rule over your people. And so God gave him great, great wisdom. He was a very, very wise individual. And with all of this wisdom... And being a king, not really needing to work too much, you know. He had lots of time on his hand. And so he decided that he was going to go on a quest, a quest for knowledge and understanding. He was going to apply all of this wisdom. And for the next 40 years, would you believe it, young people? Solomon studied. He studied. Well, unlike 
school, the type of studying that he was involved with was an understanding of the world around him. Now, you know, when children get to be about two, maybe two and a half years old, they come up with a new word, a new question that drives most of us crazy. It is why. Why? Why to everything, correct? No matter what it is, why? Well, Solomon kind of never got over getting, you know, that two-year-old why, and he just kept asking that question about life over and over and over again. Why? And I think he had in mind a couple of questions in life, questions like this, who am I? Why am I here? What's the meaning to life? What is this all about? Now, I do have to admit that most of our children ask one of these three questions. Which one do they ask when they're at school? Why am I here? Exactly, okay. Uh, But that's not exactly what Solomon was talking about. What, what am I, why am I alive? What am I doing on this planet? What's my purpose for existence? What is life all about? And probably before Solomon, and certainly ever since Solomon, people have been asking the same kinds of questions. There's actually an academic discipline that deals with these kinds of questions. It's called philosophy. Let me put up for you a definition of philosophy. I got this out of one of the great scholarly works in the 21st century, Wikipedia. And it says this, philosophy is the study of general and fundamental problems concerning matters such as existence, knowledge, values, reason, mind, and and language. Philosophy, this study of the great thinkers, the Socrates, the Platos, the Aristotles, indeed the, the Solomons. So Solomon went on a philosophic quest. Oh, Before I get off the topic of philosophy a little bit, young people, you are taking notes, aren't you? Okay, there will be a quiz. I just want you to know. Before I get off of it, I I want to give you a way to identify whether or not you're talking to a philosopher, okay? How do you know if you're talking to somebody who's really a philosopher? The answer is, if you can understand what they're saying, it's not a philosopher, uh, I, uh, I memorized for, uh, I'm not quite sure why I memorized it, but I memorized, uh, for some reason, a definition of truth given by a 19th century philosopher by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. And here's his definition of truth, and I want you to tell me, after I've given you this definition, do you think he was a philosopher or not? Soren Kierkegaard. Truth is an objective uncertainty held fast through a series of appropriations of the most passionate inwardness. (laughs) What do you think? 
he's a pretty good philosopher, don't you think? I don't understand a word of that. Uh, I actually use that in some of my classes uh, to talk about the nature of philosophy, but we'll not go there. Philosophy. Well, when it comes to philosophy, it is a quest for understanding and knowledge. And notice what Solomon says at verse 13. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is under heaven. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience in wisdom and knowledge. This philosophic quest uses some tools to accomplish its task. Notice that he says that I took on this search by wisdom. That's one of the tools that is used. And then he says later on that not only had he acquired great wisdom, but he had great experience. One of the issues of philosophy is how does one ever know that something is true? How do you know what truth looks like? Now, many of us as parents have answered the question when our children have asked us whether or not we speak truth. They ask us why, and our answer is, because I said so. That's what makes it true, correct? Uh, It's just because I said so. That'll work for a few years, but after a few years, it just doesn't satisfy anymore, correct? And they want more. How do you know? How do you know? Well, there's actually a portion of philosophy, a field within philosophy, that deals with that very question. And uh, you're going to be sure that this must be about philosophy today because I'm going to hit you with a lot of big words. Let's take a look at the definition of something called epistemology. How about that for a big word? Epistemology. Epistemology is the study of the nature and the scope of knowledge. It attempts to determine how we come to know things, and it provides principles for the evaluation of knowledge claims. Basically, epistemology is an attempt to answer two questions. Take a look at these questions with me. Number one, how can I come to know truth? How can I come to know truth? And then the second one is, how do I know when somebody says something, they make a claim, whether that claim is true or false? So, Epistemology is kind of the starting point for philosophy for how am I to answer those profound questions of life if I don't know where to go to get the answers. I mean, it makes sense, correct? Epistemology. How can I know anything? Well, once again, philosophers who think long and hard finally came up with some criteria 
or some means by which you can actually know whether something is true and how you can evaluate the claims that somebody makes. And traditional philosophy has come up with two answers. Let's take a look at these two answers. More big words. Excuse me. The first one is called empiricism. How can I know if something is true? Well, I have to experience it. I have to experience it. That is to say, I have to sense it with one of my five senses. If I can touch it, if I can taste it, if I can smell it, if I can see it, if I can hear it, well, then obviously it must be true. That's how one gains understanding and knowledge of truth, through empiricism. Probably the greatest example of the empiricist is the scientist. And many of us have had classes where we did experiments. What is an experiment? It provides you an opportunity to observe through your senses. Isn't that correct? That's what an experiment's all about. The scientist is looking for what he calls empirical data. I know that it's true because I've seen it under the microscope. I've heard it with, I don't know what a scope that would be, but you know, uh, uh, I know it's true because of empiricism. But philosophers like Plato and Aristotle said, you know, that doesn't really take us far enough. Certainly it is true that we can know certain things by means of experiencing them through our senses. But there are other things that are still absolutely true, though I never experienced them or I have not yet experienced them. So Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, they said, no, there are some things that I can know that are true, not because I've observed them, but because I can logically reason that they are true. We can use our minds, our rational minds, to come to the conclusion that certain things are true. Now, I want to ask you, how many of you in this room have seen Aunt Mabel's cat? None of us. Okay, maybe because that cat doesn't exist. I don't know. But none of us have seen Aunt Mabel's cat. But I want to ask you a question about Aunt Mabel's cat. Is Aunt Mabel's cat an animal? Yes, correct. How do I conclude that? Because all cats are animals. Aunt Mabel's cat is obviously a cat. Therefore, therefore, it must be the case that Aunt Mabel's cat is an animal. Aha! We have arrived at a truth that we have never experienced. Do you understand that? So rationalism takes us a step further. 
Not only can I know that something is true because I indeed experience it, but I can know something is true by using my mind, my wisdom. And so Solomon says, I have employed these two approaches. I've used wisdom, and I've used my experience, and I have searched out the answers to these great questions of life. Well, you say, well, he must have come to some absolutely amazing conclusions. Well, he came to some conclusions, okay. And I suppose in some way they're a little bit amazing, but maybe they're not the conclusions that we would have expected. Look what Solomon says. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. Let me pause just a second. Remember last week we mentioned that as Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes, he does not write it from the perspective of a Christian or of even a person who believes in God. He is writing the book of Ecclesiastes from the perspective of someone who knows nothing except what is under the sun. Remember, we saw that that expression was found 28 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. A similar expression is used here, under heaven. It's the same idea. It's looking at the world from the perspective of the human, not from a divine perspective, not from a perspective of God or of faith in God. And so he says, this search of mine, it's an unhappy business. And every student here says, amen to that one, okay? It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. But it's not unhappy because he was bored. It's not unhappy because he had terrible teachers. It's not unhappy because he had to sit straight in his chair. It was unhappy because of the outcome. He says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun. Behold, it is all vanity and a striving after wind. At verse 18, he says, with great wisdom is vexation. Great knowledge gets you nowhere. One might think that what Solomon is saying is, after having spent 40 years in philosophic pursuit, I've come to the conclusion, ignorance is bliss. Well, that's not exactly what he's saying. That Solomon is not rejecting philosophy. He's not rejecting the scientific method of empiricism. He's not rejecting the logical methods of wisdom and rationalism. But what he's saying is that when I try to answer the most fundamental questions of life, 
Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is life all about? He says, guess what? I don't seem to get any good answers. Everything is futile, empty, meaningless. It does not provide the answers my heart is seeking. Now he goes on and he explains why this is such a frustrating quest. Notice that he says in verse 15, moving on here, there we go, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. In this little proverbial kind of statement that he makes here, He's basically saying two things. Number one, some things can't be fixed. He's pursued life. And he said, look, I've discovered that some things just can't be fixed. Or to kind of put it in the vernacular, our world is screwed up. It just is so crooked. It can't be fixed. Now, you can ask my wife. I am one that believes in fixing just about everything. We have a 25-year-old toaster oven that I have fixed I can't tell you how many times. Torn it all apart, reconditioned it, torn it all apart, reconditioned it. I believe in fixing things. But there's a point where you say to yourself, it's beyond repair. No more. Recently, a washing machine died. And my wife, who's the eternal optimist when it comes to her husband and fixing things, said, honey, you can fix it. And I said, no, I can't. It's beyond repair. Now, if all we're talking about are washing machines, okay, go buy a new one. Not a big deal. But when we're looking at all of life, when we're trying to answer questions about who am I, what am I doing here, And we come to the conclusion that our world is so messed up. It is beyond all thought, all reason, all experience to try to make it right. 1948, Israel became a nation again. How wonderful. And ever since 1948... The Israelis and the Palestinians and the surrounding Arab nations have basically been in constant conflict. Since 1960, every single president that has come to office in the United States has basically said, I can fix this. And the bottom line is, every single attempt has failed. 
I think as long as there's been civilization, there's been poverty. And I really believe that for centuries, leaders have said, I've got a solution to poverty. I can fix this. Do you know that in the seven years of the Obama administration, with all of its hopes of change and fixing things like poverty, that poverty is more severe in the United States today than it has ever been. The gap between the rich and the poor has increased in the last seven years. It has not been narrowed. Three-quarters of the world's population is in poverty. Three-quarters. We've had a war on drugs. (laughs) We can fix this. This drug stuff. We can fix this. Well, now everybody's declared we've lost the war. This morning in Sunday school, Greg Schmalhofer mentioned 23 million, I believe. 23 million Americans are in addictions. 23 million. Our world is screwed up. And Solomon, after trying to figure out how to fix things, came to the conclusion, you know what, under the sun, there's a lot of things that we'll just never fix. He also said there are some things that you simply can't find. I can't find answers to. I can't count up what doesn't exist. We'd like to find answers to our problems. We'd like to find answers to the meaning of life. And yet Solomon says, after 40 years of pursuing it, the wisest man with all of the resources, all of the time on my hand, I've come away with the conclusion. These answers cannot be found. Well, that's kind of depressing for a Sunday morning. Would you agree? We got a messed up world that can't be fixed. And we've got all kinds of questions for which there are answers that can't be found. But thank the Lord. What Solomon has to say here isn't the whole story. There's more. God's knowledge is above the sun. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church says this, but as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those that love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now, I want you to notice that, first of all, he says, what eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard. Guess what that is? Empiricism. 
the senses. There's truth out there that you simply cannot find by means of your experience. There's hidden truth. And then he says, what man, the heart of man, hasn't imagined. That's rationalism. Okay, I can't get to all truth by my senses, but I'll get to the rest of the truth by my mind and reason. And God says, guess what? It won't get you far enough. It cannot break through that glass barrier that exists between earth and heaven. You can reason about things under the sun. You can have your experiments under the sun, but they will never be able to answer the really difficult questions of how do I fix a broken world and how do I answer the questions that seem to have no answers. But God says, he has revealed these things to us by his spirit. You see, philosophy has its epistemology, but God has his own epistemology. Here's God's epistemology. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 12 and 13. Now, we, we Christians, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The Apostle Paul says, there is truth that is above the sun. There is truth that is heavenly. There is divine truth. There is God's truth. And the way you come to know this truth is not through empiricism. It's not through rationalism. But it is through the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God has revealed these truths to us. And these truths are now resident in the Word of God. God has given to us the truth that will answer the questions of how do you fix a crooked world? How do you answer the ultimate questions about life? God has revealed them to us. And the Apostle Paul in this passage says this. And because of him that is God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The writer to the book of Hebrews says that in these last days, 
God has spoken to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. God's philosophy is all wrapped up in Jesus Christ, who has become to us who believe true wisdom. For you see, it is in Jesus Christ that God figured out a way to make a crooked world straight. Indeed, it is in Jesus Christ that he found a way to take your screwed up life and straighten it up for his glory. And he did it through some of these other words that we have here. They're kind of highfalutin words, hard words to understand. But Jesus Christ became for us not only this idea of wisdom, but also of righteousness. Why is it that the world is so messed up? The world is messed up because of sin. Adam and Eve sinned. And all of us who are in this room followed them in that sin. It is our sin that has messed up our lives, messed up our world, and most of all, messed up our relationship with God. Jesus Christ became sin for us when he died on the cross that we might become the very righteousness of God in him. That's what the scripture says. He is for us the source of righteousness. We're not righteous because of things we do. We are righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done. He is the one who has provided it, and he says to us today, all you need to do is believe. And not only does he give us righteousness, but he gives us sanctification. Sanctification is a big word. It simply means to have a right relationship with God to be his possession. You become holy. It doesn't mean that you're morally pure. That'll come with time. But it means that you now become God's choice possession. He becomes your father. You become his son. And that leads us to redemption. Redemption simply means freedom. You want to be released from a life that is messed up? You want to know what it is to truly be free? It's all wrapped up in Jesus Christ, who has become wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Here is truth 
that is above the sun. It'll never be gained through a philosophic pursuit in this life. It will only be gained if you are willing to turn from your sin, confess it to God, and believe that Jesus Christ has died and receive him into your heart and life by faith. And that's what I want to give you an opportunity to do today. It's not what we do. It's what we believe that sets up that relationship with God. It's not found in a pursuit of wisdom, reasoning, and scientific investigation. It is found on the pages of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now. And with our heads bowed, I want to give to everyone that's in this room an opportunity to say, yes, I want my life to be fixed. I understand that Jesus died to provide me with the remedy and to give me a life that is everlasting. And all you need to do is call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. Say, yes, I believe that Jesus died for me. I want to receive him into my life. If you would like to do that this morning, then I want to ask you to just stand where you are so that we can counsel with you and pray for you. Is there anybody that would do that this morning? Anyone at all? Father God, as we leave this morning, we go with the knowledge that life's great mysteries and great problems will not ultimately be solved through wisdom, through experimentation in this world. But you have solved them in Jesus Christ. Give us, Father, the determination to live for him. Help us, Father, not to be intimidated by a world of science and philosophy to realize that your truth is above all truth. And that truth is clearly in Jesus Christ, your son. We pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you.